This podcast was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team for the Junior Cycle Talks channel. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Liam Bannon, English and Arts Advisor with Junior Cycle for Teachers. And in this week's episode, I chat with critically acclaimed author, comedian and broadcaster Colm O'Regan. As a stand-up comedian, Colm has performed all over the world. He's also the creator of the Twitter phenomenon Irish Mammies, which boasts over 200,000 followers. In addition to this, Colm is the author of six best-selling books and writes a weekly column for the Irish Examiner. In this podcast, Colm chats to us about his creative process and what success looks like to him. We hope that you enjoy. Colm, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. It's wonderful to get this opportunity to have a chat with you. And comedy and broadcasting, I suppose, are what many of our listeners might know you from. But you have such a wide ranging career. You've comedian, podcast host, writer, columnist. If we were to go back to the start as a young person growing up in Cork, what was that like? And did you always know that you were going to follow this career path? Yeah, it's funny describing the wide ranging career. That's really only the last 10 years. Before that, I had a completely different career. And before that, I was doing something else in college. So starting off, I liked technical drawing and I liked English. And they're, they're at different sides of a spectrum. They're linked in other ways. And so I, I was always doing a little bit of writing, but then there was a big period of time when I was in college when I I just loved drawing I loved buildings I loved how they were constructed I loved working out how they might be constructed so I did civil engineering in college because I liked physics and I liked the maths I loved the idea that with a pen and paper you could start the process by which a giant thing gets made that for me felt like the same kind of magic as creating something like creating an idea or creating a character or writing a story so for a long time I was as in, in college I was doing civil engineering and I really liked it and then after coming towards the end of university I got offered a job in the area of like IT and consulting so it was making computer systems and then explaining what you've done to people who have asked you to make the computer system that's almost like the a very potted cliff note hi- potted history of the kind of job I was doing for a lot of my career. It's funny when you look at different paths in terms of a job, sometimes it doesn't look like it makes sense. It's, well, you liked English in school and then you went to did civil engineering and then you went into computers and now you're in comedy. But I picked bits from each that I liked and you sort of, you go along a certain path and then suddenly catches your eye, which is linked to what you're doing. And then you go, oh, and then you follow that direction and you suddenly find your miles away from where you started. So no, I never thought I was always going to be a comedian or a writer. I definitely made a few changes along the way, but what I didn't do was say, ah, that's not me or that's not for me. That's not my type of thing. I kept trundling along with an open mind. And sometimes life tells you that's probably not what you're best at, but I didn't prejudge it. So before comedy, I was working in, an, in a computer, a good job in an office. And before that, I was doing engineering in college. And before that, in school, I used to write a few essays now and then. And what was it that sparked your love of comedy? Thing is, I 
had never been to or certainly not many had been to a comedy gig before I did one. Like I wasn't like this avid comedy club goer who said, I really want to get up there. It was in the company I was working for. There was a few days where we'd do these like presentations and I had thrown a few jokes in there and people seemed to like them. And also I knew that when I was telling people a funny story about what happened, you know, we all tell stories in social settings over a cup of tea or in the office, in a meeting, or in the class. At some point in my early 20s, when I was in work telling a story of a thing that happened, people noticed that the way I would do the story is I would build it up and know when to go, boom, that's the punchline of the story, and it would get a big laugh. And I felt, oh, this is really comfortable for me to do that, or I'm enjoying this, and I'm enjoying the reaction. So one day, one Sunday, it was one of those Sundays, not looking forward to going back to work, one of those fear Sundays, a grown up version of the Glen Row theme tune playing. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I've been talk, thinking about this for a while. I'm going to Google open mic stand up in Dublin and see what's there. And there was a phone number. So this was Googling in 2004. So there's no social media. This is the Internet. So there was a phone number on it. And I rang up and said, I see you do open mic comedy can I get on stage and they said yeah like it'll be a month or so and we'll send you a date and so they sent me a date and then that became an appointment you know that I had to keep rather than humming and hawing about will I won't I suddenly you you it's like the difference between thinking you'll go on holiday and booking the flight metaphorically speaking I booked the flight and I had to turn up at the airport so I went along and that was my first gig I didn't tell anybody I was doing it because I didn't want to crash and burn in front of lots of people that I knew and it was mediocre it wasn't great but it wasn't awful and I didn't have a traumatic experience and I made a few people laugh but it was in a comedy terms it was a nothing <laughs> like it was no there was nothing remarkable about it it certainly wasn't like and then oh, I couldn't believe I could do this I had this power over these people no it was very banal like it was average but I didn't collapse and like I'll always remember that moment where I'm walking up to it's in a small little venue upstairs in the Haypenny Bridge in at the Haypenny Bridge in Dublin and you stand at the back of the room waiting to go up and it then there comes a moment where you turn the corner of like you turn left to get onto the stage even though it's all the one room and suddenly you're no longer facing the stage you're facing the audience and that moment is oh I really I'm really doing this like I'm facing in the direct the opposite direction the same direction as the performer, but now the opposite direction to the audience. So that, that's a very singular moment that I remember. The only thing I remember from that gig. And then I got, then I asked for another gig, an open mic. You can ask for gigs unless you're absolutely awful. You do get <laughs> another gig. And also it was easier to get stage time then because it was a long time ago and there was less people wanting to do comedy. In some ways it was pre a lot of reality TV. So people's notion of, making a show of themselves. There was less people wanted to do it. And I, yeah, I got the second gig. And I think by the third gig, I did a good gig in the third gig. And it went well. And that said, all right, okay, I can do this. And I kept on going. Not because I was working during the day. And I worked and did comedy for the next six years. And then eventually I decided I want to give this a go. I wasn't, I was trying to do two things. I was trying to be two people. And I wasn't being fair to each and when you're in your other job, 
I wasn't being fair to the people who worked with me or worked for me because I was a manager. I had people I was responsible for and I felt I'm not a good manager. I need to do the thing I should be doing. It's been a long enough now where I've been moonlighting at night. So let's give it a go. And I quit my job. And in the middle of the recession, the whisper became a roar and I had to do it like for my own to feel better. I felt bad about myself. Like I was like, I'm not being a good version of me doing this. Yeah. Trying to do two things. So let's give it a go. And sometimes in a recession where everybody's losing their job anyway, you go, look, I've done. I've been a good boy all my life. Let's do something unconventional i've been a good boy ended up in a house that's too expensive done the right thing so let's give it a go and and so that was yeah standing back from it it looks brave but it was a a decision that took a long time to take and when you're coming up with material for comedy and as a writer where do you draw your inspiration from or what does the creative process look like for you the creative process looks a bit chaotic in some ways because i'm always in the middle of one thing when I think of another thing and it's like how do I remember that idea so the inspiration comes from everyday life and the news and a thought that strikes me because I'm an observational stand-up comedian I don't do like characters or I don't do you know clown type stuff so it's me and it's things that that I notice so it comes from first of all I suppose the process is if I think of something I'll try and scribble it down in a notebook or often it might be that uh, two things I've started using in the last while, two tech tools. One is Pocket. So if it's an interesting article, I'll save that rather than reading it and getting distracted. I'll try and save that and come back to it. And so that's a little app on the phone because I'm, I'm addicted to the phone, which I need to spend less time on. And then the other thing is Evernote. If I notice it's an interesting thing or an idea, I'll try and write that in a little note. And then if I think of another idea related to it, I'll scribble that in next to it. Again, it's another app. And then I might link in a little voice note, something that occurred to me and try and group them all together in that area. Or simply I might write a tweet that is the joke. And the tweet then becomes the punchline of a larger piece of comedy that builds up to it. The tweet is short. It's an editing tool in its own way because it limits how much you can write it forces you to think about it structurally in making it short you make it better and also you think i'm publishing this is it be misconstrued be can somebody get the wrong idea does it does it hurt anybody that i'm saying this all those little editing things that go through it so the tweet becomes a very handy filter and then by the what spits out at the end of that is 280 characters of a punchline or an idea or an observation that then I can build further. And if people like it, then I go, all right, there might be something in that. Sometimes they don't always like it. It's not a perfect measure of whether a thing is good or not, but it is a standard. I have, have 20,000 people who sometimes see my tweets. And if a lot of them like a thing, then chances are it struck a chord with more people and it might be more relatable or more funny. And therefore that gives me a clue saying, oh, there might be something in that. So it's not, that's, so that's how like jokes work with, with, uh, with books. It's a case of an idea and go, right, what would happen if listening to the news or something like that, what would happen if that happened, but in a different setting? And what is the backstory behind that? So you see a news story and you go, who are the people involved in that? Like, all I'm seeing is the news headline, this weird thing that happened. But who are the, what led to that? Because the news story won't give you that. What were the thought processes? What were the seven decisions they made that they found themselves in this weird situation how did this good person end up doing this really stupid thing 
And then you go, right, that's an, there could be an interesting story made up in that. So in the novels that I've written, there are occasions where it's like the character could ask themselves, how the hell did I end up in this situation? What were the decisions I made in good faith that were wrong? <laughs> that were just the wrong thing to do. And why did I make them? What was it about me? What was I under pressure? Is it something that I, was, it, was somebody telling me to do that thing? Was I trying to impress somebody? Like all of those things. So that's part of it. And I'd love to be more structured to sit down and go, this needs to happen now. The next hour, I need to get this done. Um, and sometimes that works maybe for deadlines for columns and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's pretty scattergun. But the main thing is, if an idea occurs to me that what I really need to do is not discounted as a bad idea, just at least write it down and come back to it, you know? Absolutely. So your recent books, the Anne Devine series, the quintessential Irish mammy, they've been such a huge hit. Why did you decide to pick that topic or, or what drew you to that topic? Like, I guess, well, like a lot of people's careers, it's an evolution of a, of a thing that started at a much smaller level. Nearly 10 years ago, I wrote, I, I set up the Irish mammy's Twitter account, which was just writing things that a typical mother and indeed father might say, but people latched onto the, so originally there was an actual like Owlad, who was married to Irish Mammy on Twitter, and they would, but people just weren't as interested in what he had to say. <laughs> you know? So they would, I couldn't write both of them, keep on writing both of them. So I just started keep on writing with the Irish Mammy Twitter account. And from that sprang the books. And it's important to say that, like writing Irish Mammy tweets and writing the books based on her, it's a book about Ireland and the way we talk here and the things that concern us. It just so happens the main character is an Irish mother because statistically they are more often the hub of a family grouping and like more people know and remember what their mom said than what their dad said. Like that's it. Dads don't say stuff and don't say often the things that mammy say. It's just that when you're trying to reach as many people quickly with something that's recognizable, you like, particularly on, in the short form social media and Twitter, that was, that's why I latched onto it. People identified with it. And she is an every woman. She, in the sense that people can project onto her things that she says that remind them of their own mother. And then other things that have no resemblance to what their own mother said, they can take her leave. So I wrote, I wrote three Irish mammy books then. And they're, as I said, they're books about growing up. They're books about living with, as an adult, with a parent as well too. They're books about having small children getting advice from your mother and turning into your mother it's all of that like they are they're observational books about about life with an irish slant and then i wrote columns an irish mammy diary for the farmer's journal and i'd written about forty thousand words of those and thought maybe this could be a novel and came up with an idea for a plot involving what would happen if a, t a big tv show was made in a small village. It's the kind of thing that's been done before, but not by me. And mixed in with the tidy towns, what is a strong local rural network that has, where passions can sometimes run high in an unlikely setting. And yeah, that once I had that story and I built the kind of structure of who is she? What does, what's her job? Who's she married? You know, who's her partner? Does she have children? Does she have grandchildren? Is her mother still, is her parents still alive? All of those things. You build up a character and then suddenly you start to picture them 
what would they say in a particular scenario? And I'd say to anyone, I'm reluctant to give advice on writing because everybody's got their own way of doing things. But the thing that worked for me is once you know who the character is, then writing the dialogue, the things that they say becomes easier because you go, what would that person say in that scenario? And her job is a carer for old people, which allows me to talk to old people in the book. And that allows me to access old stories from a rural area. So it's, yeah, if you place a certain character at the center of a setting, suddenly you can go out in all directions to tell a story of a village or an area over time. And what are some of your favorite mammy lines or anecdotes that you've come across? Uh, I found that the, sometimes the stuff that I remember there's something that always sticks with me. Sometimes people would send me stuff. So somebody sent me a screenshot of a phone conversation, a text conversation they had with their mother, where the mother is upstairs in bed and the son, the adult son, is downstairs still watching telly. And the mother texts from upstairs saying, isn't it about time you went to bed, right? And then the child, the adult son, texts upstairs saying, I'll be gone now in a little while. By the way, I'm 24, not five. And then the mother texts down just, I am still your mother. <laughs> and it's just that, just that just encapsulated like yeah. that better than I could ever write it. Like the way, because it's technology, because they're texting each other up downstairs. Before, before that, they would have been shouting up downstairs. Shouting up and down the street. Hoarsely, yeah. when are you going to bed? I'll be up in a minute. Whereas now it's done with text. And what was <laughs> lovely as well too, is probably one of the early stages of this technology because it was like to 2012 or 2011. In the text chat, it says, Mammy is still typing, or Mammy is typing. You know, that little thing that tells you that somebody else is, is typing another message to you, that ominous thing. And so, so what I love is that tiny, I love tiny dramas. I don't mean things that are not dramatic, but dramas that last exactly five minutes minutes or 30 seconds like little play tiny plays you could call them this yeah. is a tiny play set in a house where if you could imagine the set in a theater like somebody somebody's up high somebody's down below texting like and it appearing on a screen a tiny play in 30 seconds like i love that's what our lives are made of a series of consecutive tiny dramas tiny little tv shows made one after the other which I think is a lovely way of looking at the idea of little self-contained stories and dramas that, you know, yeah. that they are what make up our lives. Yeah. And that leads me nicely on to one of your biggest MC events is a Dublin Story Slam. And obviously I know given current restrictions that's moved to an online space, but maybe for those that are listening that have no idea what the Dublin Story Slam is, could you tell us a little bit about what it is and what it involves? Yeah, it's one of my favourite jobs. I am the host of a storytelling night. It's produced by Julian Clancy, who's a radio, award-winning radio producer. And we set up this night where ordinary people who are not, they may be, but they don't have to be actors or comedians or celebrities in any way. Ordinary people tell a story that's true about them. And it might be the first time they've ever told a story to other people. And it might be their story. Everybody's got one story that they tell at a wedding or whatever, but it, often it's just, it's a small novel in seven minutes. They're amazing. The experiences, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're sad, sometimes they're 
happy and sad within the one story, within the one sentence. Sometimes they were laughing along and then the storyteller, without meaning to be like a super dramatist, sucker punches you with, and then something really bad happened. And you're like, and the audience, when it was in the sugar club, you can hear them gasp or you can hear them rumble along supportively, make a supportive noise for the person telling the story. And then they break into laughter. The laughter I hear at the Dublin Story Slam is as loud as anything you might hear at a comedy gig, but even more so because it's so often a release of tension. And it's for somebody who never got a big laugh from a group before, never even did a wedding speech, a best man speech or a mother of the bride speech or anything like that. And so they stand up uh, without notes and tell this story of something that happened to them and they could be from all over the world. And so I did my first online gig for Bright Club, which is run by NUIG. It's a science and comedy mix. And we, we saw how that went. We went, we can do stuff online. We can make these stories online. And so since then, we've done a number of shows, for, particularly for voluntary organizations, where people tell their stories. And it's actually, of all the art forms, it works really well online because somebody is telling a story but they're from their sitting room. So it's like a fireside chat. And then in the Zoom meeting, people are all supportively like clapping virtual applause and typing in supportive things in the comments. And you can hear people ooh and ah in the comments. Like they type, like, you know, oh oh my God, that's amazing. Oh, I would have been so scared if that happened to me. And it's amazing. It's a really special occasion. And for me, all I do is just warm the audience up and introduce the stories try and provide a little buffer if a story is a very sad tearful story and the next story I don't know what it might be because we draw them at random it might be a funny story and you don't want to go and okay that was a sad thing now here's a funny thing you let it breathe you let you read people's reactions and it's one of my jobs as an MC to try and connect the audience with the storyteller and then mark the end of that chapter and then move on to the next storyteller but it's a really like some of the stuff I've heard Some of the stuff could be movie plots, like action movie plots. And it's this ordinary person. And by ordinary, I don't mean that's not derogatory. It means that they're not in the drama business. (laughs) They don't seek out drama. Just something happened to them. (laughs) You know what I mean? In the same way that something happens to all of us, but sometimes people just have a humdinger of a story. And that's probably the testament to the power of a really good story. It's something that makes us gasp or applaud or smile or feel happy or feel sad or whatever it might be and I've been to the story slam myself oh yeah I suppose prior to March of last year it was something that I I really looked forward to everyone I know Um, and yeah like I've never met anyone who regretted telling a story and I've there's been people who said I was thinking I was needing to change stuff in my life anyway around that time and we would never claim like we Never claim, oh, our, our storytelling night will change your life. We yeah. do not claim that. But <laughs> we have had people tell us this was part of a change that I was, this was, I needed to change some things in my life. Yeah. And this was part of one of the things I needed to, to get off my chest, this story or whatever. So that, that's only their testimony. Like it, um, sometimes people need to get stuff off their chest or need to do a thing for the first time, stand up in front of other people. Um, and then go, right, I've done that. Now time to move on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Know? That's a great testament to it as well. So you've also ventured into the podcast realm and yeah. you present a maths podcast called The Function Room. What are you to maths? Is it 
coming from your love of engineering when you were at school uh, and into a bit college. Of that, yeah. I'm doing a podcast on maths because I don't want to have too many listeners. <laughs> <laughs> just, I just want a few. Yeah. Some of it is there are tons of podcasts, right? And tons of good podcasts. And there's lots of comedians doing podcasts. And I, I just couldn't find a way to go, what would make mine different? And, you know, you kind of look at this, it's been done so many times and I don't know what I do. So for me, maths is, I'm not a mathematician. It's years since I did stuff in anger in college. But I read popular maths books like uh, where they explain the maths behind something incredible. And it's so powerful. Like, it's like magic. It's beautiful if it's explained right, like the power of it. And it's like people buy books and read books about wizards and magicians and Harry Potter and all that. And I'm like, there's some stuff going on with numbers that would blow your mind even more. And it's real. It's right there in front of you. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed this pattern of numbers, the way this, this works and the way that works? I wish more people could just see how beautiful it can be. And I totally understand why so many people are afraid of it because often in school they associate it with getting an answer wrong, right? And that's not anyone's fault. It's that in the early stages of learning maths, in order to move on to a computer game, in order to get to level five, you need to get level four or get enough marks in it. And that's not what, that's arithmetic. That's not what maths is about or not the only thing about what maths is about. And so don't feel like it's not for you. Totally mightn't be for you, but don't feel it's not for you just because you didn't get answers right in school. There's some really interesting stuff out there. It's a hobby. Yeah. And I, because I love talking for a living and sharing and inflicting my opinion on other people, it looks like my hobbies do that <laughs> as well. So my final question then is, how might you define success in your everyday work? What does it look or what does it feel like? It's a really good question. The most important thing is that, yes, you should define success in a way that suits you. And too often I define success by what I'm not doing compared to what other people are doing in my area. And I get jealous and it uses up valuable time and valuable energy. So I'll start that by saying there are times when I don't define it properly. And I define it by other standards. And I guess it goes back to school and you define like, how did you get on in an exam? And you compare how you got on to other people and comparisons really are horrible because they make you feel bad about the thing you did. So what I try to do is, and I don't go as long as I'm happy because you need to be comfortable with not being happy as well for long periods of time that you just feel either nothing or you feel a little bit sad because you're not doing something and you're a bit frustrated or whatever but that so for me first of all that it's reasonably interesting and I want to do it that's for me that's success that the next thing I'm doing now that if I have to type I have to write a column I write a column every week for the examiner and there it's like, can't, oh, what am I going to write about this week? What a pain. I don't mind that. It should be totally fine to feel that. So that's not failure. But that I still go, like, maybe I just give it up. But I want to do it. I want to write this next piece of work. I want to do it. So that's a huge part. That whatever my job is, and sometimes it's doing something for nothing, like the podcast. Like, I want to do it. Like I am motivated, like I have to edit a podcast now. I record it and it's an hour and a half and I need to edit it down 
half an hour. So success for me is that I've chosen to do this thing that I am not trapped into doing. I am motivated to do this thing. And I'm not motivated to do everything I do, but there are enough things to keep me ticking over. And that at the end of every day, I go, oh, that was good. And this sounds corny, but my wife started doing it and I've copied her. At the end of the day, are as many days as I can do to write down five good things that happen. And it sounds so self-help booky and all that kind of thing, but it is the cheapest, easiest thing to get a piece of paper and burn the bit of paper if you want or read over it again. But the actual act of writing down, even after a really crap day, oh, that was good. I watched that good television program. I enjoyed that. I went for a walk. Somebody said something nice to me. I had a nice sandwich. Anything, right? Anything. No matter how humdrum, the actual act of writing down, and this is, I just blew my mind, that if you write down those things that you're grateful for, it actually like mushes your brain into a better state, like physically changes the paths that are going on in your brain. Because we think, oh, the brain's totally random. No, your brain will go, I'm going to feel glum about this because you told me we're going to go glum with this. But if you go, I'm happy about this, I'm happy about this, this and this. It was a terrible day. Don't get me wrong. What a day from hell. Nothing went, but there was these five things that went not too bad and it's no longer a worry. And I think that's a lovely way for adults and students listening alike to, to think about that idea of success because it is probably something that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to achieve. And sometimes, yeah, it can be the, the five things at the end of the day that really brought you a sense of contentment, even if it was for a minute. <laughs> yeah, that there absolutely. was something in that day. Something, even. yeah. Turn off yeah. the phone, all that kind of thing. Just write it down on a piece of paper. And I know it's rich. Like there's people listening to this going, that's fine for you. You don't have any exams to do. But I do in a way because I have to, I get every piece of work based on how, do, how good I did the last piece of work. So every piece of work I do is some sort of an exam. And so you still go through that. It's just that I, my marks aren't written up. <laughs> Aren't, aren't sent to my mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Colin, thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Great to get the chance to chat with you. And look, hopefully we'll be back in the Sugar Club or a similar venue very soon in the future. And the best of luck with future projects that are, are coming down the track as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team for Junior Cycle Talks podcast channel. To hear more from Junior Cycle Talks, search for us on SoundCloud or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.